Let's jump. Let's try to finish. I'm going to try to finish Acts over the next uh, hour and five minutes of class. So, all right. So, Acts chapter 18. St. Paul arrives in Corinth after being rejected in Athens. So, some followed, some didn't. Now we're back with. Um, and he's also very short on money by this time. Okay, Corinth, the city of Corinth, was essentially Las Vegas on the water. Okay, all right. So that's why I got Cor- I got that I got the picture that says Corinth, baby Corinth. Okay, like, like Vegas, baby Vegas. All right. So that's essentially what Corinth was. It was a city very similar to Vegas, but imagine it on water. So now you got s- sailors and merchants and. Um, it's a it's a wild city. The Christians, you know, they get caught up in. Uh, I think it's uh, is it Aphrodite. I think that she's the Greek, uh, right? Because Venus is Roman. Yeah. Aphrodite. The big thing that was in Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, and all of the prostitutes would gather, uh, usually a couple times throughout the year for these different festivals in the temple of Aphrodite offer up sacrifice, and then would descend into the city of Corinth uh, and, do, and do, what, do what they do. Uh, so, uh, so Corinth is very... So that's why that treatise on love from St. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians is so important. Because the, in Corinth, love was, was all about what you can get, pleasure-seeking. Uh, not about sacrifice, not about giving. So that's that whole, that's that important treatise. In um, if you've ever been to a Catholic wedding, there's a good chance you've heard uh, one Corinthians eleven, okay? Because it's one of the ones that's that's often used. My wife and I went the complete opposite way, and I think we, we used the, one of the ones from Hebrews. So uh, it was one of the choices from from Hebrews. Um, so he stays in Corinth to preach for one and a half years. God, God bless him. I, I can't. I can't be in Vegas for longer than two or three days. I'm ready to. I'm, I'm crawling the walls. I gotta get out of here. So, um, so he stays there for a year and a half. He receives great help from Aquila and Priscilla, and they were a married couple who then would eventually travel with Paul to Ephesus and later to Rome. They play an important role, this married couple. According to Pope St. John Paul II, they stand as what the Christian lay faithful within a marriage ought to do. Because they support, they, they help and support. They help and support St. Paul. They seek faith and evangelize the world in which they live. So not only did they support Paul, but they also were, they they evangelized themselves. And John Paul II also says, like this couple, the family ought to seek missionary work for Jesus Christ. If you guys don't know, I'm a, I'm a huge JP2 junkie. Love John Paul II. 
I've written so many articles on him over the years on my blog. So, like, you think about the importance of Christian couples that they play with priests. And, you know, um, that's why it's important for uh, priests to find good families within their parishes. To, to, to seek them out and, and for them to seek out their priests and um, to, to support priests, but also to evangelize and to assist in the, in the evangelization process. Uh, we see Paul eventually returns to Antioch via Ephesus in this same chapter. And then verse 23 actually begins his third apostolic journey. The back of your RSV Bibles, I believe, have all the maps for Paul's. So, um, I mean, even in grad, we didn't even go through those in grad. We 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 discussed kind of what how I discussed with you guys. We didn't never we never really looked at maps in grad school. If we wanted if we were we wanted to look at that stuff, we um, we just did it on our own. Uh, and then in this third apostolic journey, Paul visits Galatia. That's the Galatians. He visits Galatia and Phrygia. And then he returns to Ephesus and Corinth. So these cities are all very close together. And again, we continue to see Aquila and Priscilla as a married couple assisting Paul. I mean, priests are priests need good families to be around them. So like you guys are saying, you know, the... the uh, Knowing Father Chris as well as you do, being able to support him, you know he's the chaplain for the Scouts, but he's also you know him in other you know him on, on different on you know in different ways as well. So that's the, that's the important. That's really what this couple sh- this what this couple shows us how important it is to support um, our priests and bishops. Okay. That's a great document, too. I, it's on my PowerPoint. Uh, Familias Concertio by Pope St. John Paul II. That's based out of a... That's from a synod. That's from, that's, I think that's actually the first synod he had during his papacy. They came to gather to talk about the bishops in him. Came to, Certain bishops in him came to gather. I think it was, in, it was, uh, was it seven, the end of 78, I think. It was right at the beginning of his papacy. Or maybe it was 79. It might have been the beginning of 79. They come together... And they talk about the importance of the family in the modern world, and that's essentially what Familius Concertio is, the, modern, the, fam, the Christian family in the modern world, and then that's the document that comes out of it. Those documents are pretty easy to read. They're pretty straightforward, even though they're written by John Paul II, because he's kind of hard to read from time to time. Read Theology of the Body, you're like, your head's spinning. Okay. You guys, wait till, wait, wait till, wait till year two when you guys get, get, guys get Katrina Zeno. Okay, this, you're going to say, man, Tom's class was easy compared to hers. So. And her and I always joke around because they, they everyone says, man, you give a lot of notes. I'm like, yeah, wait, wait till you get Katrina. So, all right, so chapter 19, Paul goes back to Ephesus. 
and baptizes 12 men that were baptized by St. John the Baptist. Kind of an interesting... And really, this is just, this is kind of, this is pretty self-explanatory for us as Catholics. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. The baptism of Jesus Christ, that's what John's baptism was preparing people for. It was the baptism that would give us, I mean, it's grace. It's, our, it's what we receive in our baptism. The, and you'll probably get into this when you talk about sac, when you get into sacramental theology and the sacraments. The grace from our sacraments never stops working. So just because you were confirmed doesn't mean the grace from your baptism is not still working. It's you know it's still the grace is still having an effect on our soul. When we go to you receive Holy Communion, you go to reconciliation. That grace is still there. You know, um, now people can kind of push away the grace and not be open to it. But the grace, when you're open to receiving that grace, it's still there. So, you know, I was baptized in 1974. That grace, all 45 years later, is still, you know, is still working and, and, and still plays a, a part in my soul. Uh, now, what happens in Acts 19 is we see a riot breaks out when Paul speaks against Artemis. And she, this was the Greek name of the goddess. Uh, she was the goddess of fertility. Uh, the Romans called her Diana. Some non-Catholics will claim that our that our devotion and understanding of Mary comes from these two women. That's New, no, definitely not. Okay? The Blessed Mother is not a goddess. Okay? She's the highest of all the creatures of, of, God, of God, but she's still a creature. Okay? She's immaculately conceived, but she's, we don't treat her as a god. <coughs> worship and adoration, I know, I know I'm probably talking to the choir about this, but worship and adoration is meant for God and God alone. Not, we don't worship Mary. We don't adore Mary. She's, high, she's held in a very high respect. The, the term for it is like, well, there's, du, there's a, like dulia and hyperdulia. Dulia is like, a, like a, a devotion and respect that we have for the saints. And then for Mary, it's like a hyperdulia. It's even more devotion and respect because of who she is. So you'll get sometimes people will say, oh, Artemis and the Blessed Mother. No, that's not the case. And now this is cool too. In verse 23 of Acts 19, the term the way is first used by St. Luke. <laughs> A term used for the Christians and the church. The way. Acts chapter 20. So that, that was a, a silly uh, meme I made years ago. St. Paul talks about like wearing a do-rag on his head and stuff. like uh, Kind of like that rag. And um, yeah, people, you know. I was, I was wearing something like that when I was in high school on my head for a while. So it was like the in thing in the 90s. I, it's, it, now, I look back, now I look back and I'm thinking, what the heck was I thinking? So, okay. All right, so chapter 20. Paul now goes to Macedonia in Greece. 
This is pretty quick. Uh, he preaches and also breaks bread, which is in reference to the Eucharist. He heals someone here in Acts 20, heals Eutychus. It's E-U-T-Y-C-H-U-S. E-U-T-Y. It's in, it's, if you look it up in 20, you'll find it. E-U-T-Y-C-U-C-H, excuse me, U-S. Eutychus. He also addresses the elders in Ephesus. The elders would have been like the, essentially the elders of the community. And he tells them the whole fast of what he taught them. He also tells them, I will not see you again. So by this time, Paul has visited these cities, knowing full well that he's not going to be making his way back. Okay, so chapter 21 now, we see Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. This is really the last part of the, of the Acts of the Apostles. This is where we start to see Paul really become uh, a prisoner. We see similarities between Paul and Jesus. We also see in detail here how he, his journey to Rome as a prisoner is described. And once he's in Rome, as well as Peter, because Peter's, Peter's there by now, the, the gospel message really starts to open up to the whole world. Jerusalem was important in the east, but Rome was the center of it all because it was the Roman Empire. Now you guys start to see, this is a, a, beauty of this, a beauty of this class and understanding Acts of the Apostles. For me, for a long time, I always believed that Peter and Paul from Jerusalem went right to Rome. But you don't see that. They go to Antioch, then they go throughout Asia Minor, then they eventually go to Rome. So they eventually make their way to Rome, but it's not as quickly as we all kind of probably perceived in our head at one point. That it's just, you know, all that, you know we know as Romans or... Were, were Latin Catholics, Roman Catholics, that you know that they 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 did eventually get to Rome, but um, but it doesn't happen immediately. And for a long time, before I started studying my faith and studying the scriptures, I didn't realize that. Um, so again, similarities between Paul and Jesus. He kind of knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. Paul and his companions are then welcomed by James, the bishop of Jerusalem. And so, and it seems by this time, according to Luke, 
because he makes such distinguishing differences between there's a, there's the differences between apostles and elders and then also other apostles. So there's this distinguishing factors of different um, individuals doing the Lord's work. And again, like I said, Paul, uh, Peter has already left for Rome. Who's, remember, I, 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 who's Peter's translator that goes with him? John Mark. John Mark. Yeah, St. Mar- uh, Mark, the, the gospel writer. That's, so he eventually goes with them. Like Jesus, we also see this is so Paul... Uh, is like our Lord because Paul's arrested while preaching in the temple and he's falsely accused just like Jesus and Stephen. Now the, the temple was still existed at this time. It wasn't until 70 AD that the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And if you've ever been to the Holy Land, which I have not, I know some of you have, the, the wall, the, the, um, the wailing wall is actually like a retention wall of the, of the, old, of the second temple period. So you had the first temple, you guys probably talked about this in the Old Testament classes, you had the first temple that Solomon built that was eventually destroyed, and then they go back after the exile and they build the second temple, but then Herod builds, kind of adds on to the temple. That's why he's Herod, Herod the Great because he was greater than all the Herods before him but he was a bad dude to begin. he was a bad dude as well But because he, he was trying to he was trying to build up the temple to, to show the Jews that you know, he, he was kind of supporting them but he himself wasn't a Jew and you know, it's all of that history that we can dive into but yeah, so that's the so that's, this is, that's the, that, it's that wall the wailing wall is still kind of like the, that's what's left of that, that, that second temple um, and even though Herod made it nice and when they, when they build it, it, it I always find it funny when they come back from the exile and they rebuild the temple and they says that the old men were crying in front of it because they realized it wasn't anything compared to the Temple of Solomon, which was supposed to be this luxury, beautiful, it was like the Garden of Eden, essentially. Um, you know, you had the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. But, um, so, so again, that's the, so the Romans in 70 AD, they come in and they destroy, they finally destroy the temple for the last time. That's where, that's where really we start to see uh, the temple worship Sacrifice of the animals is, is no longer no longer part of modern day Judaism. All right, for some reason I always forget to put Acts twenty two in here the slide. So I'm just so Acts twenty two um, is uh, so we get this speech by Paul, and it's the first of his personal defenses, three personal defenses. So we have, we see this one in Acts, and then I'll, I'll, and then twenty four and twenty six. We also see him defending himself. So this is actually one of your, this is based on one of your final, which I'll give to you probably next week. Um, I'll give to you your, um, your, one of the final, paper, on your final assignment, one of the questions focuses on Paul's defenses. So, 
he tries to prove three things that Christianity is not hostile, does not deserve hostility by the Jews nor suspicions by the Romans. Does that deserve? So, does not deserve hostility by the Jews or suspicion by the Romans. So this is what he's trying to this is what he's trying to prove that it's that it's not it's not Christianity's not hostile towards these individual these two individual groups. He presents himself as a pious Jew full of respect for his people and their traditions. He's a pious Jew, and that's important. So it's the, Rome, the idea of Roman citizenship and Paul's, Paul being a Roman citizen and also a Jew, I'll talk about that as well. And then he desires, the other part of this speech is that he desires his brethren, his fellow Jews, to come and see the compelling reasons for his commitment to Jesus Christ. And when we think about where Paul first started off, murdering Christians, being there at the martyrdom of Stephen, now years later, defending his own faith in Christ. It's, it's an amazing conversion story. This speech is not really a defense in the, in the strictest sense but his aim is to bring attention, more attention to Jesus Christ. It's not about Paul, even though he's, it's, it's, like, it's, a, it's a defense, but it's not a defense. All he wants to do is bring souls to Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what's Paul's mission. Bring souls to Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile. And then we see at the end that he uses his Roman citizenship to avoid being flogged. Actually, next week we'll talk about, we're gonna, next week we'll, all, we'll focus on Paul completely and some of the themes in Paul's letters. So next week I'll talk to you more about his Roman citizenship. Because it plays, it plays an important role in, the, in, in how he's killed compared to how Peter's killed. Some of you probably know. So he uses, so flogging was something meant for criminals um, and not for Roman citizens. Because it was really, a, it was like crucifixion, it was, it was humiliating. All right, so Acts uh, chapter 23. These next ones are all very short. So Paul tells the brethren that he was educated and that he was a Pharisee. Well, again, all next week we'll get into just strictly Paul, how educated he was. Why he goes, that's why he's able to speak to the Greeks so well. Uh, we also see in Acts 23 there's a plot to kill Paul. Paul is sent to Felix. 
the, the governor of the time. And then he's ordered to be held in Herod's Praetorium, which is like You guys learned about the Herods, right? In one of your cl- in, the, in one of the classes, did you just learn about the, the Herods were all puppet kings for the Romans. That's essentially what they were. They were pla- they were placed in in Rome. Like Herod the Great was not a he wasn't a, he wasn't a Jew. I think he was an Edomite. So when so when the wise men that's why it's crazy that's why it's all that's a kind of a side story I love telling the story that's why when Herod show when the wise men show up after looking for Jesus where's the newfound king of the Jews Herod's probably flipping out okay because he knows he's not a Jew the Jews didn't the Jews couldn't stand him they hated they hated them they always were plotting to kill him and he was. So when they when the wise men showing up, look at the newfound king of the Jews. There he's he's like, oh, well, you know, and then that's what he says to him. Once you find him, let me know. So it's probably we always celebrate it as like Jesus was in the manger when the Magi show up. But more than likely, uh, well, according to the scriptures, it was probably two years. So when, by the time the, the Magi see Jesus, he's probably about two years old, somewhere around the age of two. Because that's why Herod slaughters all the baby boys from two and under. Because it probably had been two years since the wise men had seen Herod. So, um, so in the, and actually, even one of the script, one of the one of the, the gospels in Matthew, gospels talks about where they where they went into the house, um, not necessarily because we believe Jesus was born in a in a cave and placed in a manger. Um, but yeah, the Herods, there's a whole, when I taught New Testament to high schoolers, I did a whole thing of the New Testament world, and we talked about Herod um, and, all the, and all the Herods. But they're essentially puppet kings for the Romans. So, And then verse 24, Paul is then sent to Felix where he gives another defense of himself. So this is his second defense. So we saw the one in 22. Here's his second defense of himself. And again, it's not strictly, it's not a defense in the strict sense. It's again, it's about bringing more people to Jesus Christ. And then Paul is kept in custody by Felix. And then Paul is left in prison when Festus takes over. So that's another governor. I found myself when I first read Acts these late, these last chapters of Acts. I felt them. I felt like I was finishing a good book. I was like I couldn't get to the story. I couldn't get to them fast enough. I had to go back and read them because I was reading them too fast. And you're just because you want to find out what happens to Paul. Then we move into twenty uh, Acts twenty five and twenty six, where uh, Festus finds Paul now in prison.
This is where Paul uses his Roman citizenship to his advantage because he appeals to Caesar in Rome. A similarity between our Lord and St. Paul here because Festus sends before he he grants that Paul can go to Rome and appeal to Caesar, but he also sends him the Herod uh, Herod Agrippa, one of the, one of the Herods. Jesus was also sent to Herod, and just like Herod questioned our Lord, Paul is also questioned by this Herod. So again, yes, we talk about the importance of typology. We see even, even though typology references from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we do see similarities where we could say, in aspects, Paul was a type of Jesus, uh, in a sense, because he goes through similar things that, even though Paul, you know, because typology mostly is Old Testament to New Testament, um, but we see Paul as a, somewhat of a type of our Lord because he goes through similar um, similar uh, experiences. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. And then verse 26, we see another defense. So this is his third defense. Now he's defending himself against so we see it against Felix, Festus, and now Herod Agrippa. Talks about his conversion story and how he preached Jesus to the Gentiles. Now this is interesting because this speech shows us how diligently Paul strove how diligently Paul strove to respond to the grace that he received. And it's a good example for us. We're given we're given grace by our by the sacraments. But we shouldn't let that grace in the talent of our in the talents that we have and the ability to talk about our faith to go to waste. You know, we should focus on the good things that we do have and be able to use them accordingly. You know, when you're done with Keno, you know, if your parish needs someone to step up to do an adult faith formation class or something like that, you're the ones that should be jumping up and doing that. I don't, I don't mean to put any pressure on you in week two, but that's really what, really, you're the ones that, okay? When, when I was running the adult faith formation program at the parish, the people I was looking to, because, I mean, this year, this year I'm not doing, I'm doing something completely different. But if we were going to expand, which was the grand plan, if Father Will had stayed at the parish, probably the grand plan would have been to expand the adult faith formation program into 
I don't know. If we, I don't know if we were going to do, probably wouldn't have done like a certificate program, but probably would have had more more classes and just a kind of a different a different nature than what it was. But it was. I went to the. I went to our keynote graduates. I'd called. I'd called up Stephen Luz and said, "Who's our keynote graduates from Mary Magdalene?" Because that's the ones I wanted to at least at least let them be a facilitator for us. So your parishes, once you guys are done. The parish says, hey, we need someone to lead this study. You know, don't be like the Knights of you go to the I'm in the Knights of Columbus. You go to the Knights of Columbus meeting, everyone's looking around like for the other guy to do it. So okay. Don't do that. Okay? Or I've been in the Knights for, for, for 30 almost since I was 19. So, you know, everyone looks around, goes, I don't want to do it. They look at the ground, look at their feet, look at the sky. Don't be that, don't be that dude, okay? Don't be that guy, don't be that person that does that because that's what they do. If your if your pastor says, I need someone to lead, be like Paul, step up and do it. Um, I mean, we had, I had two Kino graduates a couple of years ago. They teach stuff for, uh, I think they do stuff for the catechists for Kino. I think, I think Steve reaches out and asks them to do stuff. They're a married couple from one of the parishes up, up in the north part of the valley. And I see, the, I'm friends with them on Facebook, and I see uh, John's a meteorologist, so it's cool, because so, I love the weather. So, uh, so he's always talking about the weather. So, um, but yeah, he's, uh, they're doing stuff for Kino now teaching classes and so that's that's the stuff that uh, you're called to do so that's what Paul's like don't waste your talent you're given the grace you're given this knowledge don't waste it okay uh, and then Festus at the end of 26 Festus the, the Roman thinks he's a madman but Herod doesn't think he deserves death you know don't waste your gift and talents that's the whole reason I started my blog seven years ago was to, was to, because uh, I liked writing. I enjoyed writing. My father saw that and he said, well, why don't you start a, is there an avenue of where you can start writing? And that's, that's where my blog came into, uh, into existence seven years ago. You get this sense Paul almost converted to Herod right there and that he was getting close. Yeah. Herod was kind of like, he was kind of, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's what's yeah. You think he, you think he's almost got him and is yeah. And we don't know. You know, we don't know. We don't know what happened after the scriptures don't talk about Herod anymore. You know, could have could have Herod could have Herod converted after Paul left him? Maybe, but, but we don't we don't know. But yeah, it's close. Okay, twenty seven and twenty eight. The last two chapters. Paul finally, now he's making his way to Rome. This is where uh, Paul uh, encounters difficulties at sea. Something interesting that I didn't know until I learned, until I studied the faith, until I studied theology myself, is they were traveling in the month of September, which was a dangerous time to sail on the sea because of the weather. Kind of interesting. So you start to, you know, they're, they're faced with these trials of being on sea. The Mediterranean, uh, I guess during this, this time of the year, you know, there's certain times of the years that it's, so that's what they're facing, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they couldn't, yeah, oh, yeah, because that's right, because the, uh, the storms, you couldn't see what the, yeah. 
I mean, that's amazing. We can still you, you still use that today. The traveling by the stars. Uh, and then on the fourteenth day, Paul breaks bread and they all eat. So that's again. That's so we see in chapter twenty-seven again. The, anytime you see breaking bread, it's focused on the Eucharist. It's it's speaking about the Eucharist. And then they're also stranded on an island in the, at the end of Acts uh, 27. And then lastly in Acts 28, <clears throat> so they, they go from that island, then they go to Malta. Anyone ever been to Malta? One of our parishioners, she's a, she's a, uh, that's her home, her family, her parents still live in Malta. Uh, while they're on this island, Paul now heals many of the local natives. We see him similar to Christ here in a sense because he's performing miracles to, on people who are very superstitious. These little islands in the Mediterranean at the time, the early century, would have been filled with these different peoples, um, essentially uh, like barbarians. They were you know, really people had no, uh, not barbaric in the sense of their culture, but they just had no understanding of the outside world. Uh, he arrives in Rome and preaches for two years in Rome, openly and unbinding, which is very interesting since he was essentially a prisoner of Rome, but he, but he preaches for two years. And as I said in last week in class, Acts, what's, what's, God, what's Paul preaching at the end? The kingdom of God. The beginning of Acts of the Apostles begins with the kingdom of God. Jesus talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. And then at the end we get Paul talking about the kingdom of God. So again, it's that, in, that, like, that literary boomerang uh, where you get the kingdom of... Where the, 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 the God, Acts of the Apostles is all about the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. Focusing on that. Um, and it's this inclusio understanding that Christ talked about it. Peter talked about it in the middle, and then Paul also uh, talks about it at the end. So it really is through the Roman peace that really Christianity just starts to really flourish now. It seems that way. If in the West, yeah. Right. Yeah. So because you, you gotta, so we gotta keep that in mind too. So. So their authority really kind of helped keep that checks and balances. Because it's interesting to see that as long as you were not. A threat to Caesar, and as long as you were not, was one of the other crimes, uh, they pretty much let you know Judaism and Christianity just kind of uh, flourish within themselves. And anything, any any disputes among the leaders of doctrine, like they say in the scripture, you know, they left it up to. Not all cases was neat, but yeah, and they and they were they were hostile to it though too. So you couldn't. It wasn't a wasn't a 
Yeah, it wasn't wasn't org, wasn't a wasn't a religion of the empire. Right. So you couldn't. So like in the early centuries, until Constantine legalizes Christianity, any kind of building of a church would be knocked down by. The, now, as as you move on, and you guys have that you see in the church history class, certain Roman emperors were more hostile to Christianity than, than others. Um, and you get like, like Diocletian was terrible. Um, he was real bad. I mean, the big persecutions for the church during the during the. So these are obviously post Acts of the Apostles. This is you're going into the second and third century before you get into Constantine's uh, legalizing of the of the of the empire. But yeah, while Paul's you know while Paul well, we see while Paul's in Rome. He's pretty much openly unbinding, allowed to preach the gospel for two years. Did a lot have to do with the fact that he was a Roman citizen? Yeah. That he kind of was given kind of like... Yeah, because, and we'll talk about that next year, because Roman citizenship was important. Well, that was important. Even though he was a Jew, he was still a Roman citizen. So we'll, we'll talk about it again next, next week. But it's just like, well, how's he a Roman, you know, how's he get that Roman citizenship? It's important. It's, we'll by talk. Birth, wasn't it, by birth? it was by birth, yeah. He didn't buy it. No, no, his parents were, we'll talk, yeah, his parents were Roman citizens too. Okay, so the similarities, so this is, this is actually, I think, on your, I, I, you don't have to fill these in, I just have this chart for you. So this is what we talked about in the beginning of class, where we talked about the similarities. So, similar preaching, St. Peter and St. Paul, Acts 2. Peter talks about the Vedic covenant in Acts 3. He talks about the Abrahamic covenant in Acts 13. Paul, spoke, Paul fo- focuses on both the David, David and the Abrahamic covenant. So, so Peter and Paul are saying the same thing. Now we, we were saying that in the beginning of class. Sa- same thing. Both healed. Peter by his shadow and then Paul by the handkerchief. Okay. That's also the kind of the origin of um, our understanding of relics too. We start to talk, when we talk about when you talk about the re, like relic theology. Those are two. When I was in grad school, at Franciscan, I wrote a 50, 50 page paper on relics. Uh, it was crazy. The two they were actually two papers. One one was twenty five pages, and the other one was twenty five pages. Um, on the on the development of the doctrine of relics, um, so that's where those are two those are two uh, important uh, scripture verses when it comes to relics. Uh, they both defeat sorcerers, Simon and then Elamas. We see the dispensation of the Holy Spirit with, from both of them. They both escape prison, and then they both raise. Individuals from the dead. So the, the 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 grand scheme of all this is they preach the same gospel. What Saint Luke is saying is that Peter and Paul are close. They're doing similar things. They're saying similar things. They're doing similar things. They're they're. It's not like you know we get certain individuals that say that Peter and Paul are doing different things and they're not the same person. Both raise people from the dead. The big thing that we see in the, the, the term, the, the, the theological term, is that there's a continuity of doctrine between Peter and Paul. Continuity of doctrine. It means 
what one was saying, the other one was saying the same. I mean, it's that's the you know we talk about that in in the history in the church. There's a continuity of doctrine that exists between what the early church taught and what we're teach, what we're teaching today. Continuity remains the same. Sacred tradition. Yeah, that's all. That's all part of it. Yeah. You know, it's 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 the, those things that. Like with the Gospels themselves, when the church developed, when the church gathered together to decide what went into the canon of scriptures, one of the ideas was the continuity of doctrine, continuity of the faith. The Gospels, the, the four Gospels that we have are eyewitness accounts. They're saying that they, they present what Jesus said. Compared to like the Gnostic Gospels that were written in the 2nd and 3rd centuries years later, they weren't eyewitness accounts, and they have some of the most bizarro teachings, okay, like the Gospel of Thomas and uh, Judas and these other, these other Gospels. So when the church is looking at it, there's continuity because the four Gospels that we have show continuity. It's, it's what Jesus actually said. These other Gnostic Gospels, which you can read them, they're a little strange. I mean, they're strange when you read them. Um, <laughs> because the, the doctrine isn't the same. There's no continuity of doctrine. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, written by people. Those Gnostic, and that's, in, again, something you probably learn in church history class. It's those Gnostic groups always thought they knew better than the church. Oh, we know better than the church. When you start saying that, you got problems. Okay, it's usually it's usually the beginning of your downfall. Okay, unless you unless you repent and say no, I don't. You know, I mean, that's, there's a reason why Tertullian and um, uh, what's the other one? Tertullian and uh, now we still quote them. They're still early church fathers, but they're not saints because they got wrapped up in these Gnostic groups later in life. Origin. Origin. That's it. Yeah. I couldn't, yeah. I wanted to say, it's like, I was thinking creator, but that's not the, it was like, or, yeah, or, origin and Tertullian. Yeah, that's why they're not saints. Benedict quotes them all the time because their early stuff is fantastic, but later in life, they get, in caught, they get caught up with these Gnostic groups. And there's, a, there's quite a few of them in the early church. That's where a lot of the, the, the early heresies in the church, they all develop from these groups. Um, they all come out of these different groups. And, uh, it's, it's, that's, that's, you know, when you start saying, I remember, I remember, uh, uh, what's this, what was his name? Not Peter Kreef. Um, one of my, uh, Dr. Alan Shrek was one of my professors at Franciscan. He said, when you start telling the church, you know more than the church does. It's, it's usually your, the beginning of your downfall. It's your, you got, you know, it's, it's church has been doing this for 2000 years and we got people, oh no, we know what, we know what's better. So, all right, real quick, let's just go through. Um, all right, so that's the similarities between Peter and Paul. All right, so this actually fulfills one of your, um, uh, one of your uh, course outlines for the class. So the church fulfills Genesis 22 and 2 Samuel 7. So Mount Moriah, it's looking towards the death of Christ on the cross. That's where uh, Isaac sacrifices, um, or Abraham sacrifices Isaac, or the, the attempt. Um, 
out of the side of Jesus Christ comes blood and water. The two important sacraments of the church, baptism and Eucharist. So we see Acts of the Apostles now fulfilling uh, because Mount Moriah, that, that sacrifice would also point to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Um, there's an un, the unconditional promise that God has bound himself. So the promise that we see in Genesis chapter 12, that God says, you know, I will fulfill these promises, these promises that I've made to, to Abraham or Abram at the time. He will, they will be fulfilled in Abraham's descendants. Well, the, the descendants of Abraham is the church. Mount Moriah is also the place where the Temple of Solomon would be built. So the same place that the sacrifice of Isaac occurs... The Temple of Solomon would be built on the same site. The animal sacrifices from the temple would be repetitions of the sacrifices that would be done on this site. So the, 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 sac, the animal sacrifices that happened in the temple that happened over and over throughout the years which Christ then fulfills and makes complete. And of course, obviously, this points to the Eucharistic theology and the bloodless sacrifice that occurs in the Mass. So think about that. Every time we go to Mass, it's Calvary, um, but, in a blood, but in a bloodless way. That's why it's important to have a crucifix somewhere in the sanctuary, primarily a hanging, usually, or somewhere in a dominant, pr predominant place in the sanctuary, because the cross of Christ is happening on the altar in a bloodless way. You have churches with these resurrection Jesuses, and, um, you know, that's, the theology is all wrong. Yeah, some of that, yeah, we, this, the 60s and 70s caused problems. Nobody read the Vatican II documents. That's the other. Oh, don't get, if I go down that rabbit hole, we'll never get out of here. Okay, so. Uh, all right, the international empire that was prophesied to Abraham. Remember, we talked about this last week. So the, 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 the apostles are asking Jesus about the kingdom of God. They're thinking kingdom of Solomon and David. Christ doesn't want to reestablish the geographical land of Solomon and David. He wants to build the kingdom of God. He wants to build a larger kingdom that composes of Everybody, everyone, the, you know, the world, like I said, the, remember the upside down iceberg. We only see a small part of the kingdom of God. The international empire consists of Jews and Greeks and Gentiles, etc. It's, it's a large empire. That's also one of the promises made to Abraham. 
So that really, all of that is focusing on what we see in Genesis 22. And then 2 Samuel 7, which has to do with the, which, was, which is the primary scripture verse of the Davidic covenant. We see that David's son will also be God's son. The relationship, that sonship relationship, is being restored with now David's offspring. So that relationship that gets destroyed when the temple gets destroyed, we see Jesus now restoring that. That's why he's called the son of David. Okay, because he's the fulfillment of David. David's son, 2 Samuel 7, talks about that David's son will have eternal and universal reign. Eternal and universal reign. Jesus Christ, the son of David, establishes the church which has eternal and universal reign. And it's a dynastic kingdom, means it's, it's a great name. That's one of the promises to Abraham, that your name will be great. And it's fulfilled, we see it, we see it starting with David and then being fulfilled by Christ. And then Luke, then, the, then we see just Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke, verses 32 and 33, the Davidic kingdom from 2 Samuel 7 is now fulfilled. The kingdom kingdom that's being professed in the Old Testament is the kingdom of God, which is then fulfilled by the Catholic Church, which is truly an international empire. King international kingdom that word if you don't like if you when you think empire you think empire strikes back so but that's when you think like an international kingdom because because what and the the argument that be like people will say well what about the orthodox churches and that's always an argument that comes up that I've heard well the thing is with the orthodox churches they're they're not international everything's by country. Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, you know, they're by a country or a region or a a people. Catholicism composes and encompasses all of that. That's why the Table of Nations is so important in Genesis chapter 10, because all of that comes, all of those people come under, um, come under the umbrella of the Catholic Church when we see it in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Go, you know, you've ever, a lot of people have been, you know, some people have talked about going to the Holy Land. You go to Rome. One of the coolest things I've ever experienced was at World Youth Day in Rome in 2000. I've been to two World Youth Days. I went to that one. I was a youth minister at that one, actually, when I was, when I was at St. Thomas Aquinas in the West Valley years ago. One of the wildest things is being on a bus and hearing 10, everyone's wearing the same shirts, they all have Benedictine crosses around their necks. Everyone's fired up. Everyone's excited. They want to see the Pope. No, that was when we were seeing not Pope St. John Paul II. And everyone's excited. 
and you're on this bus and you hear multiple languages around you, all speaking about similar things of what they experienced. Being on this bus, standing on this bus, and I literally heard Japanese, uh, you know, uh, different African languages, uh, English, obviously, here in my own language, Spanish, Portuguese, you hear these different languages. It shows the universe. It's so, so cool to see all these different languages. And that's, that's what makes the church universal and, and becoming and really fulfilling, fulfilling Genesis 22 and 2 Samuel 7. Whew. This is good stuff. I, you, you guys want to stay? I'll go another, we'll go another three. We'll start with St. Paul right now. We'll go another three hours if you want. So, all right. So, I actually have to get to work. So, um,